let's do some science and and miscellaneous. Uh, we've been we've been sort of gotten to that formula of the past few weeks, where the third segment is devoted to science and technology. But by God, we like science and technology, and let's do some. Let's start with this article from one of our favorite, our, our actually our favorite scientific magazine, New Scientist, British publication, uh, <laughs> titled "Gibberish in Print." Apparently, a student prank, uh, which was not the cutting edge of artificial intelligence, still managed to get the better of some human intelligence last week after a computer-generated piece of gibberish was accepted as a genuine scientific paper. Sick of receiving spam emails requesting submissions to the 2005 World Multi-Conference of Systemics, Cybernetics, and Informatics, which charges $390 for each attendee, students Jeremy Stribling, Daniel Laguayo, and Maxwell Crone of, the, of MIT wrote a program that generated a nonsense paper. Starting with a skeleton of sentences, pools of nouns, verbs, adjectives, and adverbs, and a random assortment of computer science jargon, the program produced a grammatically correct but utterly nonsensical paper entitled Rooter a methodology for the typical unification of access points and redundancy. Stribling said, this isn't artificial intelligence. It's the dirt simplest way we could think to do this. The conference organizers say that the paper was sent to human reviewers who never commented on it, so it ended up being automatically accepted. The conference has now banned the paper, but the pranksters are still planning to give a computer-generated talk at the conference by persuading a human speaker to let them take his or her place. And in that, we wish them well. And, I, and I'm sorry to report that we don't have any excerpts from Reuter, a methodology for the typical unification of access points and redundancy. And, and Reuter, if you're keeping score, is spelled R-O-O-T-E-R, and no, I don't know what it means. And speaking of uh, computers, according to the U.S. News and World Report last month, Americans discard 133,000 obsolete personal computers each and every day. That's 900,000 computers every week. I'm not sure whether we did this story, Mr. McMillan, but what the hell? It's a good story. Let's do it again if we did it. Um, it's official. Researchers at uh, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore say you really do need that coffee in the morning, and when you don't get it, you really are in withdrawals. As little as one cup of coffee a day can produce caffeine addiction, said the researchers. Caffeine is the world's most commonly used stimulant. It's cheap and readily available, so people can maintain their use of caffeine quite easily, said Roland Griffins, a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience who led a review of 170 years worth of studies on caffeine. Griffiths and colleagues are pressing for caffeine addiction to be included in the next edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That would be the DSM. I guess next one would be five. The DSM-5 considered the Bible of mental disorders as well as other references. If you've been listening to this program on a regular basis, and, and we hope you have, you would note that, that we started out a long time ago with a long program on the DSM-4, and our 
skepticism of it. In particular, the fact that there's no provision, (laughs) there's no diagnosis listed for people who think they've been abducted by aliens. Since you can't bill for that, you are presumably a sane individual. Whereas the withdrawing caffeine addict has a mental disorder, certified by the Psychiatrists of America. By the way, in North America, 80 to 90% of adults drink caffeine regularly, with the average daily intake in the United States being about 280 milligrams. That's the equivalent of one or two cups of coffee and up to three to five cans of soft drink. Mr. McMillan, we need, we need to trot out that commentary we did for Capital Public Radio on, on that subject, uh, but not today. We, we're, we're short on time. Maybe next week we'll bring that one back. All right, with an increasing concern of mosquito-borne illnesses here in the West Coast, and, you know, we're going to see a lot of nasty viruses that are mosquito-borne uh, coming to North America by hitchhiking aboard jets, a jet plane maybe in the Congo or in Brazil or wherever, takes on a mosquito with a virus in its gut, comes out in America. Next thing you know, you have a West Nile virus. Uh, Anyway, the CDC, that's America's Center for Disease Control, um, is now giving a blessing to a couple alternatives to DEET, the ingredient that's found in most uh, most, um, mosquito repellents. One is... Picaridin, a chemical widely used in Europe and Latin America, but only recently formulated into mosquito repellents in the U.S. The other is oil of lemon eucalyptus, a plant-based product that's been shown in tests to be just as effective as low concentrations of DEET. Now, most people that get West Nile virus are only going to get a flu-like uh, like syndrome, but uh, apparently it did cause a polio-like paralysis in at least 900 Americans last year and killed 88 people, most of them in Southern California where actually 28 people succumbed to West Nile virus. So, uh, you know, you're down in Manhattan Beach, Santa Monica, you know, down in L.A., going to Disneyland, you may want to take along some picaricidin or some lemon eucalyptus in addition to your N-N-diethylmetatoluamide. And, and please, can someone explain to me, can someone send me an email at info at radioparallax.com, explaining how N-N-diethylmetatoluamide is abbreviated as DEET. I don't get it. I can get the D and the E, the diethyl and the T, toluamide, but where's the other E come from? And how come there's no N's? I don't know. Can someone send me an email? A couple years back, I think it's almost uh, just a little over two years ago, I had a chance to go down to the Caribbean and visit the island of um, Dominica, which I guess you can also pronounce Dominica, but but not the Dominican Republic, which is um, the eastern half of the island of Haiti. Dominica, Dominica is a smaller island, uh, much to the east, and noted for its... Uh, it's uh, rainforests and um, ecotourism. It's trying to bring a lot of people into the area to enjoy the what rainforest is left, and a fair amount of it is, percentage-wise, on the island, and without uh, you know trashing the um, the landscape. Well, they have a little uh, boiling lake which you can hike to, uh, and yeah, it's you can basically drop an egg into it and cook it in about five minutes. The water temperature is usually. Um, about 195, 
pretty close to boiling. Well, something happened uh, not too long ago uh, in, in December, and the lake stopped boiling. The water level dropped about 40 feet. And then uh, various sulfurous fumes, normally um, you know, being injected into the water, were then sprayed over the local uh, landscape, uh, causing a lot of uh, trees to die. Uh, the water dropped down to 138 degrees, uh, but apparently um, has filled up again and started boiling again. Uh, it, it does that every so often. It did it in 19, uh, 90, 1999 and 1977. I just mentioned this because it's an interesting little island. If you get a chance to go to that part of the world, uh, you might want to do that hike. But you do have to beware in volcanic areas like Yellowstone or, or uh, the Rotorua area in, in New Zealand that occasionally these gases like hydrogen sulfide, which gives these volcanic vents this rotten egg smell, it's actually a very toxic gas. And there was a case uh, when I visited New Zealand where a few months before a couple of tourists... Uh, died in their hotel room when apparently hydrogen sulfide gas leaked in. So um, I guess the point of that is you better sleep with your window open. <laughs> Which, of course, just prompt my producer to look at me and say, wouldn't that, wouldn't that let more gas in? I think it came up through the ground, so I guess fresh air would be the antidote. Hey, let's see, another good advice besides get fresh air and don't breathe hydrogen sulfide, uh, we have, um, you know, the fact that you should, you should walk. You should walk. You should, of course, exercise. We, I think we all know that. But studies are now trying to determine how much exercise is enough. I mean, how little can you get by with, knowing that Americans are going to try and get by with as little as possible. Um, the U.S. Institute of Medicine of the National Academies noted that, uh, that although 100 million people in the U.S. are overweight or obese, um, estimates show that uh, if people between the ages of 10 and 65 would switch to an exercise program that would involve the equivalent of walking five kilometers, three miles, or biking 20 kilometers, about 12 miles each day, which more than 60% of Americans absolutely fail to do. Um, it would reduce U.S. carbon dioxide emissions by 11%, while it resulted in an average weight loss of 12 kilograms for walkers and 26 kilograms for bikers. 26 kilograms, that's like 55 pounds. Uh, well, actually, more like 57. Well, I don't know. I don't know how long it would take to lose that, but um, estimates show that if you did, it would save about $117 billion in medical costs for treating obesity. So, uh, you know, here in Davis, it's probably the uh, the bicycle, you know, capital of, of the United States. Uh, I think that most people realize there's a great advantage in pedaling around where you want to go, but um, but there's a lot of catching up that still needs to be done in the rest of the nation. The stat that really surprises me is that we could reduce U.S. carbon dioxide emissions by 11%. That's that's significant. All right, I've only got a few minutes left, so let, let's go back to our, you know, the... Um, the public affairs a talk show hosts uh, best pal the week magazine because they always have some short items we can just uh, throw out at you um from the bottom line section interesting statistic the rich clip coupons 72 percent of americans who make more than one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year use coupons this compares to 65 percent of the rest of the population now you're thinking maybe, well, that shows that the rich are, you know, saved their money and they've done very well for themselves, and that's why they have, uh, they're doing so well. Well, 
Probably not. Because regardless of income, it turns out that coupon clippers wind up spending $8 of unplanned purchases for every $1 they redeem through coupons. So obviously the correlation between money and coupon clippers is that if you're a coupon clipper, <laughs> you need to have a lot more dough. And, 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 I, and I, hate to, I hate to bring that news to you if you're one of these people that looks forward to the Sunday paper every week because of all of the ads that are in there. Yes, if you're judicious, you may be able to save yourself some money, but <laughs> for the average person clipping coupons, it's an eight to one loss. Now, in our first segment, we talked about a uh, trillion dollars going out to Pluto. Well, no, but according to Business Week, the United States owes creditors a record $7.8 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars. And if you stacked up those dollars on top of each other, the pile would reach almost 821,000 miles into space, which is three and a half times the distance from the Earth to the moon. And in a rather sort of fascinating uh, uh, application of statistics, not to federal elections, but to um, everyday life, it's estimated by Forbes magazine that um, if you examine the people who stopped flying after September 11th, you will find that by driving instead, by driving using a car, which is a much more dangerous vehicle than an airplane, that 1,200 people died in car crashes, which took place because they weren't using airplanes in the wake of the terrorist attacks. And that is according to Forbes magazine, and I am inclined to believe that. All right, we're running out of time. I want to talk about gerrymandering and the art of rigging elections and the possible changing of how we do this in California in the future. I, 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 I agree with Governor Schwarzenegger that when you have um, 153 seats in the Congress, in the State Assembly, and in the State Senate, and none of them change party hands, something is wrong. But, don't, but we'll get to that in a future show. All right, let's go to the gossip file to end today's program. Now, uh, apparently Paris Hilton, after years as an A-list social butterfly, has said she wants to get serious about her business empire, citing Donald Trump and P. Diddy Combs as role models. Quote from Ms. Hilton, I'm glad I got the partying out of my system when I was young because I'm so over it and I can focus on my career. Her movie career gets underway uh, with the release of House of Wax, which I saw Ebert and Ropert do a review of, and I would say, <laughs> yeah, I would say, if you get a chance, don't walk, run, run as fast as you can away from any theater which is in danger of showing House of Wax. But uh, the blurb on Paris Hilton in the week that really caught my eye was the end of this little uh, little item. It said that she will uh, will attend parties if paid to do so. Her standard fee is $150,000 to $200,000 for showing up for 20 minutes. And can that be real? I'm somewhat incredulous. Can that be real? Will someone pay Paris Hilton $150,000 to show up for 20 minutes? 
my producer's uh, incl- is nodding his head, saying he's sure they would. And I, you know, I, you know, <sighs> some people just have too much dough. All right, and I have to finish up with with Radio Parallax's favorite trash celebrity, Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> Apparently, in uh, the Atlantic Monthly last month. Sridhar Papu wrote an article about Mr. Rivera, which, which, from what I can gather, uh, bases all of its evaluations on Rivera, on quotes from Rivera. It's been noted that uh, critics have often accused the flamboyant Fox News correspondent of being a self-promoting sensationalizer. But when he rushes off to war zones, but when he rushes off to war zones, Rivera says he's not showing off. He's just doing his job. Quote, you have to get out there and as close to the action as you can. CNN anchor Aaron Brown would, why, he'd crap his pants if he had to be in some of the places I was. It's the same way about every one of those Geraldo detractors. How many times have you been shot? How many times have you had your car blown up? Well, of course, if you're keeping score, as far as I know, the answer to both those questions about Geraldo Rivera, how many times have you been shot, are zero, and how many times have you had your car blown up is also zero. (laughs) All right, and our final quote from the week, because the week does a great job for Radio Parallax, and we we like to use them. When When the September 11th attacks occurred, Rivera quit his job as a CNBC talk show host and took and took a $3 million pay cut to cover the war in Afghanistan for Fox. He said it was his patriotic duty and vowed to personally kill Osama bin Laden. (laughs) You know, I I wish somebody would indulge Geraldo and give him a chance to exercise some of his fantasies, like the one he had about having a knife fight with O.J. Simpson. You You know, I wish someone could hand those two guys knives and let them go at it, actually. And anyway, if anyone out there in the pay-per-view industry is listening, take note. I, I think that'd be a big seller. Because let's face it, no matter how many lacerations there are, in that case, the public wins. <laughs> and let me just wrap this up with, uh, with, <laughs> with the fact that although other reporters scoffed at Rivera's theatrical coverage of the Afghan and Iraqi wars, such as with cameras rolling, microphone in hand, he would rush toward firefights, Geraldo's comment on that was, Nobody was braver. Yes, that's Geraldo's evaluation of himself. Nobody was braver. And as far as that episode in Iraq where uh, he was widely derided for drawing a map in the sand that showed (laughs) illustrated U.S. troop movements, it was an honest mistake. At 62, Geraldo Rivera says of himself, he can still outreport nearly everyone on TV. Quote, I'm like a franchise ball player at the end of his career. I'm like Randy Johnson or Roger Clemens. Old guys who can thrill, still throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Well, that about wraps it up for today's program. We would like to thank Al Franken and Marinda Johnson, uh, both uh, from Air America, KSAC 1240 AM, uh, for 
Speaking to you, the KDVS audience, and a special thanks also to James Israel of the Comic Press News. James actually was the one that told me about this and and, uh, and helped arrange the whole matter. Uh, I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This show was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Tune in again next Thursday at 5 o'clock when we'll have an interview with Catherine Ahn, currently an intern over at Capital Public Radio. And we will also have an interesting talk with Lyra Halperin, who is another uh, uh, person here at, at KDVS who sold her story, uh, the story of wearing her daughter's insulin pump to National Public Radio, and uh, we look forward to having her talk about uh, about uh, what led her to put that story together and what it was like having um, a segment broadcast to the nation. And now, stay tuned for Todd. But it's the same old story.